0: Could the EU do more to defend the rule of law and democracy in Poland and Hungary? Of course it could do more. It could do more without changing the treaties. But the problem isn't the tools or the structures. The problem is the political decisions of other leaders.
1: And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. In the early years of The Good Fight, and I encourage you to go back and listen to some of those amazing conversations we had in those disorienting days in late 2016, early 2017, when we're still trying to make sense of the basic contours of this new world in which authoritarian populists were suddenly part of the mainstream rather than the fringes. Well, In those early days, one of the main debates we were having was the following. In established democracies like the United States, would the existing institutions manage to rein in and shape the governing style of newly elected populist leaders like Donald Trump? Or would Donald Trump and other leaders be able to corrupt the institutions, to make them operate in their image? Well, I think it's too early for a definitive answer. But the last years and months and weeks and the last days, frankly, have brought very bad news on this front. In the United States, the Department of Justice is now investigating the investigation into Donald Trump's dealings with Russia. The State Department is investigating foreign service officers who had some emails they sent to their colleagues at the State Department forwarded without their knowledge to Secretary Clinton's private email account. And the result may be the dismissal of a lot of foreign service officers. The FBI now has leadership handpicked by Donald Trump. The Department of Defense has just awarded a huge contract to Microsoft that might well have gone to Amazon and could have been redirected because of Donald Trump's desire to punish Jeff Bezos for his ownership of the Washington Post. In other words, at every level of the U.S. government, we are starting to see a deep politicization. The use of public office to serve the personal interests of the president, to allow him to punish his opponents, to start purging professional staff from institutions like the State Department, to take revenge for people who investigated his actions. And all of this is separate from, goes beyond the thing that is in the news every day, the way in which he used his leverage over Ukraine in order to push for Joe Biden to be investigated there. Again, it is too early to tell how the story will end. But at this point, it looks as though Donald Trump has been far more Effective at taking control of the institutions of the United States than many of the optimists expected back in the first days and weeks of this podcast. Today I have with me Dan Kalaman. Dan is the Jean Monnet Chair and Director of the Center for European Studies at Rutgers University. He's a sociologist and political scientist who is one of the leading experts on the European Union and EU law, and he has made a number of crucial contributions in the last years that have helped us understand both the choices facing British politicians with Brexit and the way in which the European Union has allowed countries like Hungary and Poland to drift towards autocracy. So this is a really clarifying conversation about everything that's going on with populism in Europe from Britain to Poland and Hungary to the EU. For all of you who cannot for the life of you understand what exactly the difference between Theresa May's deal and Boris Johnson's deal is and why it is that one is suddenly being voted through when the other one wasn't and all of those other questions, you will understand a lot more and have much more interesting thoughts about it after listening to this hour of conversation, I promise. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dan. Dan, welcome to The Good Fight.
0: Well, thanks for having me, Yasha.
1: You know, there's a lot of things to talk about in terms of populism and Europe at the moment. And I always try to avoid being overly topical. But let's start talking about Brexit, which is obviously on everybody's minds. You know, the strange thing about Brexit is that For three years, journalists have written stories that seemed very important day to day. I think The Guardian has had sort of live updates about Brexit, probably, you know, one out of every two or three days, the whole of the last three years. And yet it can feel as though not all that much has happened in the last three years. Where are we at? What stage are we at with Brexit?
0: Well, Yasha, you're right that over the past few years, essentially, the UK has been running around in circles uh, with the EU on Brexit. And I think that was because they were refusing to face up to some of the fundamental trade-offs that their plans for Brexit entailed. And where we are now is as we approach the deadline, it's finally time to make those choices. And something I've talked about a lot is that essentially Theresa May and and then after her Boris Johnson made three incompatible promises. They said, we're going to take the UK out of the EU's single market and its customs union. That's promise number one. But number two, we're not going to have reimpose a border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. And number three, we're not going to have any internal border on the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and Britain. But those three promises couldn't all be realized. You know, they, they had to pick two of the three.
1: So this is what's called a trilemma, right? So you're saying that there's these three different goals and you can have two out of those three, but you can't have all three at the same time.
0: Exactly. I had the idea for talking about these trade-offs this way, thinking about something I'd seen at my auto mechanic years ago. He had a sign that said, good, fast, and cheap. Pick any two, right? But you couldn't have all three. And similarly, if the UK is going to leave the single market and customs union, then quite simply, there must be a border. And then the only question is whether you impose a border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, which violates the Good Friday Agreement and causes you know, huge problems, resurrecting questions about peace on Ireland, or you have a border essentially within the United Kingdom between Northern Ireland and Britain, right, uh, where you're checking goods coming across the Irish Sea. So there has to be a border, and that's the difficult thing for the UK to confront.
1: So if you have a trilemma, that means that you have three possible choices, right? Assuming that you don't choose stupidly to give up two things that you think are good, that leaves you with three options of what to give up, right? So the first option is to give up on the single market, right?
0: Yeah, so one option would be to say okay, well, after all, we're not going to leave the single market and customs union of the EU. We're going to stay in. But that would be to sort of violate what Brexit was all about in the eyes of a lot of, especially the more hardcore Brexiteers. That's one option.
1: And and why is that? Explain that to me. Because my understanding during the referendum debate was that a lot of the Brexiteers, and there was always a division within the ranks of the Brexiteers. So there's the official leave campaign and the unofficial leave campaign. But at least a lot of the people in the official leave campaign, which would have included... People like Boris Johnson at the time seem to be saying, yeah, of course we'll stay part of a single market. It would be foolish not to. So why is it so important to many Brexiteers at this point to leave the single market? Because this is the one thing that everybody in the Conservative Party now seems to be agreed upon, that the one solution that we can't embrace is simply to stay in the single market and all of this complicated stuff about the Irish border becomes irrelevant.
0: Well, you're right that a lot of things were said during the referendum campaign. Some people said, oh, we'll be staying in the single market. You heard that from people in the Leave campaign. But then you heard other visions. And, you know, as you know, and you probably talked about in your program before, part of the reason that Leave could win is that the Leave campaign basically offered up a whole number of visions of what leaving might entail so that people could sort of imagine their own outcome and project that. Paint your own Brexit adventure, yeah. Exactly. But in a sense, whatever was said, that's history now, and there were a lot of lies, et cetera. But the important thing is, as you said, now the sort of definition to the levers, the committed levers of what leave means, really does include leaving the single market. And why is that so important? Well, two reasons. It's both the single market and customs union, which are related, but not exactly the same. They want to leave the single market because if you stay in the single market, that means you have to obey all the EU's rules and regulations, which for a lot of the leavers, that was one of the things they wanted to escape. They say, we don't want to be bound by EU red tape rules and regulations by the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. We want to escape that so we can deregulate. That's one thing.
1: And part of the idea here, as I understand it, is that there's something really paradoxical about staying in the single market. Because if you complaint about the single market is, as you're saying, high industry standards, bureaucratic, red tape, and so on, then at least as long as you're part of it, you can help to shape those rules. Whereas, if Britain left the European Union but basically bound itself to the single market, it would become a rule taker but not a rule maker. It would be bound by overrules made in Brussels, but it wouldn't have any influence over them. And that seems like a pretty bad world.
0: Exactly right, Yasha. So, critics of staying in the single market have raised a very valid concern. They say, well, if we stay in, we're going to be bound exactly by the same rules. We'll no longer have any say. We will be a vassal state. And that was the phrase that came up, right? And, you know, there's some element of truth to that, for sure. And then on top of that there's the other issue of the customs union and that's uh, you know the space within which they have a common external tariff but they have the same customs internally and the problem with that is if the UK stays in the customs union, then they can't really negotiate their own free trade deals. And, you know, Brexiteers have promised, oh, well, we're going to reorient ourselves, do new trade deals with the United States, with China, others. But if you're in the customs union, then you're locked into the EU's trade deals. So some say, if we don't leave, then, you know, what's the point?
1: Okay, so that rules out the simplest option, right? Which would involve the least negotiation, which would be easiest imagine what it would look like. But for all the reasons you just pointed out, that's off the table at least for the hardcore Brexiteers who now seem to be in charge of the Conservative Party, let alone the Brexit Party. So that leaves us with two different options out of a trilemma, right? So one of them would be to say, well, we have a hard border between Northern Ireland and the rest of Europe. And after all, Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And so if Britain is going to leave a single market, it would be natural that there is a customs border as well as potentially a border for people uh, between Northern Ireland and the rest of the island. Why is that such a bad option?
0: Yeah, well, that option ignores the fact that the Good Friday Agreement and peace in Northern Ireland were premised on both Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland being part of the European Union and therefore being able to get rid of the border between them. It was a crucial piece of that peace treaty was to dismantle the border and let people who were living on either side of the border move freely, let goods move freely, create a one Ireland economy, and basically allow people in Northern Ireland who you know felt Irish, wanted to be Irish citizens to still live in Northern Ireland and not face any impediments there. So if they return to a hard border there, that would violate the Good Friday Agreement. And then one key thing is that the EU would never give them a deal right? So then they would basically be facing a kind of crash-out, no-deal Brexit, because for the EU, that is one crucial element to any deal, is that it cannot involve a reintroduction of a border on the island of Ireland.
1: And this is particularly important, as I understand it, to the Irish government, which of course is part of, of the EU and has veto power over any kind of deal that the EU might strike with Britain. So then the third option is, well, you have essentially a hard border between. Ireland as a geographical entity and the rest of the United Kingdom. So why is that such a bad choice?
0: Well first of all I would just say that in fact that is the choice that Boris Johnson's deal, the the kind of tweaked new deal that he signed with the EU a couple of weeks ago, that's the option he's gone for. He's gone for the border in the Irish Sea option which interestingly, You know, he rejected himself last year and Theresa May famously said last year, no British prime minister could ever sign up to a deal that created a division within the country of the United Kingdom between one constituent part. Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom on the island of Britain. And the reason that's, let's say, bad, first of all, it's quite unusual, of course, to create a border within your own country. And for Northern Ireland and for the very influential Democratic Unionist Party there, it's an absolute no go to create that kind of division because, of course, the Unionists are afraid that anything that creates a kind of border or impediments between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK will kind of set them on a course for Irish unification, create this division and push them toward Ireland, so they are adamantly against it. So now Boris Johnson with this deal has alienated the DUP.
1: Uh, Okay, great. So you've started to allude to these different deals, because this is something that I, to be honest, have not yet fully understood, which is to say that Theresa May, in her uninspired way, negotiated some kind of deal with the European Union, and Parliament voted it down repeatedly you know, less than half a year ago. And now Boris Johnson has taken over as prime minister and he went back to Europe and he negotiated a grand new deal, which according to everything I've read is substantially in most points, very, very similar to Theresa May's. It's basically Theresa May's deal with a few amendments. And yet the House of Commons has now, at least in an initial reading, uh, given its assent to that deal. So is there a difference between these two deals? which gives rational reason for a good number of MPs to change their mind? Or does this not have anything to do with what the relationship between Britain and the EU is going to look like in the future? It's just that they like Boris Johnson better than they like Theresa May.
0: There is a substantive difference between the deals, but also some of the differences in the voting patterns you were talking about come down to the relationships between MPs and Boris Johnson and the preference for him. But in terms of the difference, the big difference is that Theresa May's deal, she essentially went for the option of not really leaving the single market for goods and the customs union of the EU. And the way she went for that is that she said, well, yes, we aim to leave, but in case we can't work out a solution for the Irish border, then we will rely on this thing called the backstop, the famous backstop, which was a kind of insurance policy that said until and unless... Uh, the UK can work out some technical solution to avoid having to have uh, border checks, then the whole of the UK would stay in the EU's customs union and its single market for goods. Now, many of the Brexiteers thought, no, that's unacceptable because that could lead to kind of perpetual de facto membership in the EU really without you know having any say. So Johnson's deal gets rid of that by instead accepting a border on the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and the UK. So essentially, in terms of that trilemma, he made a, a fundamentally different choice where he said, okay, we'll be all right with a division within the UK and leave Northern Ireland in these things as long as the rest of the United Kingdom can leave.
1: And so what will that border look like? Because as you were pointing out, Theresa May recently said, and Boris Johnson at a time agreed, that you know, no British Prime Minister could ever agree to a hard border between one part of the United Kingdom and the rest of it. And obviously, the fear is that in the long run, this would lead to Northern Ireland becoming part of the Republic of Ireland, separating from the UK. And in fact, one of the absolutely striking things about the totemic importance that Brexit has taken on in the British public in the last 10 years is that a majority of supporters of the Conservative Party, whose full name is the Conservative and Unionist Party, have now said that they would be willing to see Northern Ireland succeed from the union if that's the price for Brexit. So has Boris Johnson basically accepted that this may be the long-term result of his actions, or is there some attempt to make sure that the border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK is softened?
0: Well, listen, they're spinning this, and there are some claims initially by ministers, oh, there wouldn't have to be checks, but in fact, there will be. Now, no one knows exactly what those checks will look like yet. There's a lot to be worked out still, and there may even be differences depending on whether goods and things are moving uh, from east to west versus west to east, if you see what I mean, from the UK into Northern Ireland or vice versa. But certainly, the EU side right, will demand that when goods come across from Britain into Northern Ireland, that they are subject to customs checks and that they're subject to checks as necessary for certain goods, health and safety, things like that. So Johnson would never admit that he is sort of casting Northern Ireland aside and uh, setting a course for the breakup of the UK. But I think that's exactly what he's doing. I think that uh, you know, he's thrown Northern Ireland and his DUP allies under the bus and essentially I think what's really striking is that it's very clear now to anyone who doubted it before that Brexit puts the very existence of the United Kingdom at risk, right? It risks the breakup of that union.
1: So one way of putting this in the terms of your original trilemma is that basically the trilemma leaves people with three possible choices. None of these three choices are acceptable. And you cannot publicly admit that you're embracing any of those three choices, So Theresa May's solution was to essentially choose remaining a member of the single market, but without being entirely upfront about it. And Boris Johnson's solution was to essentially establish a hard border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom without being entirely upfront about it. And so, you know, the two possible explanations for why Johnson's deal passed and Theresa May's didn't is either that Brexiteers now care more about exiting the single market than we do about the integrity of the United Kingdom as a political entity, or that Boris Johnson is a better snake oil salesman and he was better able to obscure the nature of a choice.
0: Well, you're exactly right how you put it. But I would just hesitate on one thing. His deal hasn't really passed. It did pass what's called a second reading vote, and, and so there is more support, you know, for his deal partly because he's more closely aligned with the hardcore Brexiteers. So they're perhaps more willing to look the other way on problems in his deal than they were with Theresa May. But really, it's still by no means clear that his deal will actually, and and the withdrawal agreement bill, as it's called, that would be needed to implement his deal, it's still by no means clear that that will pass in the UK. You know, He tried to force it through very quickly, giving just a, a couple days of scrutiny, and then Parliament rejected that, said, we need more time to actually read this to really understand the implications in terms of a border on the Irish Sea, et etc. So we still have to see whether it would actually pass the British Parliament. But I think, as you put it, the key thing is exactly as you said, that neither Theresa May nor Boris Johnson can really be honest about these trade-offs because essentially none of the outcomes are really acceptable to the UK.
1: Yeah, that broadly makes sense. So let me ask you another question that I've been struggling with. And this has been a sort of fantastically clear exposition of some of the stakes, which I think it's very easy to get muddled and confused about, and which I sometimes feel half of British journalists and and politicians are confused about. But there's two different interpretations, you know, of why Brexit has been rending the country apart. And I'm somewhat torn between them. So the first is that Britain is in many ways a unique country within Europe. It had an empire that ruled half the world. It had a historical importance in the world that wasn't rivaled by any other European country. And that therefore its membership as an equal among others in this complicated European multination entity was always a poor fit. There was a lot of resistance to Britain entering the European community as it then was in the 1970s. The locus of that resistance migrated a little bit from the Labour Party to the Conservative Party to UKIP, but it was always there. And so this is a sui generis issue, which was uniquely able to rend British politics apart. That's in some ways the more hopeful interpretation. The other interpretation is that a lot of Brexit is an anti-establishment vote that it thrives, even for those important differences to the election of populists like Donald Trump in the United States, that it thrives on a basically populist imaginary of politics that says that this is a struggle between good, pure, ordinary people and these corrupt elites who have sold out the interests of a country. And that however Brexit is resolved and whenever it is resolved, that basic energy, which is now taken over the Conservative Party, is going to infect all kinds of other aspects of British politics. And that as soon as Brexit is done, we're going to see pitched fights around immigration or around LGBTQ rights or around, you know, whatever other issue it might attach itself. And this is basically been the vector that has allowed populism to conquer the British political scene. Which of those two basic interpretations do you find more plausible?
0: It's an interesting question. I don't see them as you know necessarily uh, in tension with one another, though. so maybe I, mm. I see the trade-off differently. I, I think it's very true in terms of the first interpretation that the relations of Britain and the EU from the beginning were very uncomfortable and distinctive. They were never a fully committed member, always one foot in, one foot out. And you say that in many respects throughout the history of membership, you know, getting opt-outs from things like Schengen and the euro, never being fully committed, even when, let's say, once Labour and people like Blair were more pro-EU than the Conservatives, they were still always saying that EU had fundamental problems, needed fundamental reforms, etc. So there was never an embrace, really. So that's all true, what you said. At the same time, of course, there's no question that in the context of the broader wave of populism that we've seen across many advanced democracies, that in the UK's case, that populist wave got grafted on to this specific issue and question of Brexit, right? And so because of that, I don't really see them as mutually incompatible kind of visions of, of what happened. But I do think going forward, whatever happens with Brexit, the kind of populist tensions you're alluding to, are going to continue to royal British politics, because essentially The Conservative Party has been taken over by these kind of forces that were once considered very extreme and associated with UKIP or the Brexit Party. But, you know, they're really core within the Conservative Party now.
1: Yeah, I think you're right that these two things aren't actually fundamentally in tension and that they can sort of lay on top of each other in the way that you outlined I want to do a free movement conversation here. So this was movement uh, one. Movement two is going to be about what's going on at the moment in many of the Central European countries where authoritarian populists appear to be taken over or to have taken over. You've written extensively about Hungary, to some extent about Poland and other places in Central Europe. And then I'm just teasing that movement three is to ask, well, are there deep problems with the European Union? If you have Brexit on the one side and the rise of movements like those of Viktor Orban and Jarosław Kaczynski in Hungary and Poland. So let's start with Central Europe, first of all. I mean, do you think Hungary is a democracy at this point?
0: No, uh, I don't think Hungary is a democracy for the simple reason that to be a democracy, even in the most minimalist definition, you need to have free and fair elections Now, the OSCE, which does election monitoring in Europe, declared the last two parliamentary elections in Hungary, it said they were free but decidedly unfair with the government using control of the media and other government resources to uh, greatly disadvantage opposition parties. Right, That's right there in these reports to read. So, no, without really fair elections, uh, you don't have democracy.
1: So, how do political scientists go about attaining whether something is a fair election or not. It can't just be the outcome, right? Because in Japan, the ruling party tends to win virtually every election. The re-election rate for congressmen in the United States is very, very high. There's a big incumbency advantage. So what is it that makes us say, well, elections in the United States, despite some serious problems, are mostly free and fair. Elections in Hungary are, are no longer free and fair.
0: Look, it's a great question and obviously there's a kind of continuum because even in strong democracies there can be some elements of, you know, small-scale fraud and things like that in elections and so you don't automatically declare an election not to be fair if there's you know, a little bit of cheating or improper behavior on the margins. So yes, there can be a continuum, but you know, essentially when you cross the kind of Rubicon is where the elections are you know, so unfair where the incumbent party uses state resources, control over things like election regulators or just control over the media to kind of harass opposition politicians, to deny media coverage to the opposition, and to tilt the playing field to such a degree that there's not really a realistic chance of winning for the opposition. And political scientists usually call this competitive authoritarianism. And I would just emphasize that You know, when we think of authoritarian regimes, I think a lot of people, we just immediately jump to thinking of brutal dictatorships. But really, most authoritarian regimes in the world today have elections. They just have these skewed and tilted elections that they put on for show, you know, to be able to kind of make a plausible claim that they're democratic when in fact they're not.
1: So one aspect is just how have the strongman rulers appropriated the system in such a way that it becomes really difficult for the opposition to actually win at the ballot box, right? And in Hungary, that goes to everything from a decidedly unfree media to, for example, the Electoral Commission, which is completely dominated by allies of the government, investigating opposition parties for supposed fraud and finding them huge sums of money so that they essentially can't campaign. On a practice that both is actually legal on most interpretations and the governing party itself, Fidesz, has always engaged in and has never been investigated for. So there's all of those kinds of ways in which you can make sure that when it comes to election day, the opposition just doesn't actually get a majority of the votes. Now, it seems to me that there's also something else going on here that we saw particularly strongly in the mayoral elections in Istanbul and Turkey and um, increasing in a few other places as well, which is that populists in this weird way can have a cake and eat it too, which is to say that they use the control of power in order to make the political system unfair, in order to make sure that the playing field between the government and the opposition is not even. But if somehow they should lose an election anyway, they can then use their control over key institutions like the Electoral Commission and like the courts to overrule the outcome of the election. So there's a sort of two-level game here. where the first level is we try to actually win a majority of the votes through all of these unfair practices. But then the second level of the game is, and even if we lose, we then cancel the election openly as they did in Istanbul, or as we've seen in Bolivia, we then use our control over the key levers of a state to actually just falsify the election results, which is likely what happened in Bolivia recently. Does political science have a way of capturing the second element? Is that something that hasn't really been theorized yet?
0: No, political scientists do talk about that, and uh, and you described it very well. The other thing I would add is that even in these electoral authoritarian regimes you're describing, You know, sometimes at the local level, the regime to kind of allow enough flexibility in the system, they will allow opposition parties to win at the local level. So you had that in Turkey. Now, Istanbul created a big reaction, but other cities have been controlled by opposition parties, you know, all throughout Erdogan's rule. And so you can have these little pockets of opposition power at the local level. The government is more concerned generally with controlling, you know, the national government, of course, right? So that's an element. I, I guess the one thing I would add too is that although these systems have an incredibly tilted playing field and rig the elections through all the mechanisms you described, elections are still moments of risk for these regimes. Because in order to maintain the facade of democracy, they have to still have elections, have them mostly be free, even though they're rigged and unfair. But if there is a sufficient rallying of critics and opposition forces, there can be these ruptures at those moments. It has happened. So it's both a tool of control, but it can turn out to be a risk for the regime.
1: Well, all of the color revolutions in Ukraine and other countries nearly always, not always, but nearly always happened around elections. So there was an election. The regime tried to steal the election outright by falsifying the results. And then there was mass protests, because one of the hardest things with mass protests is to find Uh, The occasion that mobilizes people is to find the moment that focuses anger at an increasingly autocratic regime. And a stolen election is probably uh, the most likely and and effective of those, or at least it it, it historically has been. Uh, What about Poland? So, you know, in Hungary, Viktor Orban was elected, if I'm remembering correctly, at the end of 2010. So he's had a number of periods in office in order to consolidate his rule. In Poland, the government was elected a little over four years ago and has just won re election about a month ago. It has a clear majority in the same, the lower house, which is the most important body. It still retains the presidency. So the president is up for re-election next year, and he does have veto power. It does not have control over the Senate, but the Senate in Poland can only delay legislation a little bit. It can't actually veto legislation. So, you know, when I compare Poland and Hungary, but you know those countries better, it seems to me that Poland today is pretty much at the stage that Hungary may have been like in 2015, say, that there's real similarities when you look at the different stages Uh, at about the time it takes for a strongman leader to take control. Poland looks roughly similar to where Hungary had gotten to by that stage. But on the other hand, Poland is a bigger country. As a result, it has a more diversified media landscape. It has perhaps a stronger civil society. So so perhaps there could be an argument that Poland is in less danger now than Hungary was in 2015. What do you think? How worried should we be about Poland? How obvious or how compelling is the comparison to Hungary at this stage?
0: Yeah, so I think Poland is still a democracy, uh, although it's a democracy in danger. It, it hasn't quite c- crossed the Rubicon that Hungary crossed. And one of the big reasons, one of the key differences, is that when Orban was elected back in 2010, because of some idiosyncrasies of the electoral system and the outcome of that election, he managed to get two thirds of the seats in the parliament, which in the Hungarian system allowed him to rewrite the entire Constitution. okay. So he essentially, which he, he went ahead and did that with no input from opposition parties, et cetera, but he could then plausibly claim that everything he was doing was at least legal as he dismantled kind of checks and balances, consolidated power, and sort of paved the way for... Perpetuating his regime. Now, by contrast, in Poland, right, the Peace Party didn't get that kind of supermajority that's necessary to revise the whole Polish constitution. So what you've seen over the past years since they came into power in 2015 is this big battle, in particular with the courts, where the Polish government would start to do things that were unconstitutional, be blocked by the courts, and then they were trying to dismantle the constitutional tribunal and the Supreme Court. And that's led to all these ongoing, still unresolved battles with the EU, which in short is trying to sort of defend the independence of Polish courts while the government is trying to eliminate that. So yes, Poland has been marching down in this direction toward the Hungarian model. In fact, Kaczynski famously said he wanted to bring Budapest to Warsaw, in other words, import the Orban model. But because they didn't have that supermajority and because Polish civil society has been more active in resistance, they haven't quite consolidated power in the same way yet.
1: What is your most likely estimate for what is going to happen in Poland or what are the crucial turning points that will decide whether this democracy in danger will continue being a democracy or, or will actually start to resemble Budapest even more closely?
0: Well, first, it's the judiciary and the elections, is sort of what I would focus on, and maybe uh, also the media. Uh, So in terms of the judiciary, they have not given up on their desire to complete their sort of takeover uh, of the judiciary, their purging of independent judges and replacement of them with judges that are loyal to the peace regime. So that's something to watch for is the continued efforts to take over the Supreme Court, which then allows them to kind of control everything else. The other thing is election regulators and election rules. I think we're going to see them continue to try to revise these rules so that they can be sure next time around to get an even bigger majority. But then on the media, I would say the big difference is that while they have turned the state media into a propaganda arm in Poland, there's still a lot of independent media. So we might see them trying to take over more of the independent media, newspapers, radio, etc., as Orban did earlier.
1: And one of the differences is that some of those key media institutions are actually owned by American companies. And before the election, which piece won, the deputy prime minister promised that he would repolonize uh, the country's media if it wins. So I agree that that's a crucial battlefield to watch. And I think the presidential election that's coming up in the spring or summer of 2020 is going to be absolutely crucial, because that could potentially give the opposition uh, veto power over legislation, which would be a real impediment to the peace government. So you've written a lot about the ways in which all of this can actually happen, Even though countries like Poland and Hungary are members of the European Union, which supposedly only admits full democracies and was supposed to be a kind of guarantee that its members would remain democracies. So, what was the expectation? What was the logic behind thinking that member states of the European Union would always remain democracies? And why is it that Hungary and Poland have been able? to eschew that influence and actually, in some ways, to use the EU for their own purposes, to make it easier for them to build these semi-democratic or, in the case of Hungary, autocratic regimes.
0: As you said, the EU sets out democracy, respect for rule of law and human rights as conditions for membership, as conditions for states to join. They didn't do as much in terms of preparing the EU with tools in the event that a state would cease to be a democracy. Why didn't they? I think partly there was a kind of post-Cold War confidence in democracy and the triumph of democracy and people just didn't think that was very plausible. But there are a couple of provisions in the treaty that were designed to maybe deal with that eventuality, but it, I think it wasn't really taken seriously as a risk. But I think, you know, one of the things I've argued a lot is that actually we shouldn't be surprised that pockets of authoritarianism or you know member states backsliding could emerge within a union like the EU, because in fact, in many federal democracies, and the EU is not even a full federation, but let's say in in full federations around the world, there are often individual states within those federations that remain authoritarian. So we've seen this in places like Argentina, in the US with the, the south, the sort of southern states after the civil war. So this goes on, and in terms of why it can happen in the EU and how these regimes can get away with this, it's actually very similar to what we've seen in other places. And I, I point to three main factors. Number one is essentially party politics, where there are these things called Euro parties, these pan-European political parties that join together, national political parties of the same sort of orientation. There's a center-right European People's Party. There's a center-left party of European Socialists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, the key is if you are a national autocrat, or an aspiring autocrat, if you're a member of a pan-European party and you deliver votes to them, then what we've seen is that party will offer you political protection.
1: Hmm. And the famous case of this is that Fidesz, is still a member of the center-right European People's Party, which has been dominant in the European Parliament for many decades. And after the last elections, I actually don't know the exact state now. I mean, there was sort of a big show of suspending them, but effectively they still appear to be a member of a faction. But at a crucial point when democracy was imperiled in Hungary, Orbán's membership in the European People's Party gave him an incredible amount of protection.
0: Yes. And I mean, if we think about it for a second, it's, it's a striking contrast. People think of Orban as uh, yeah, the archetype of this illiberal democracy or a far right populist in Europe. And they think of Merkel as the leader of the free world and uh, the champion of liberal democratic Europe. Well, the two of them are allies in the European People's Party. And in fact, Merkel's Christian Democrats have been the crucial protectors of the Orban regime in the EPP. So it's quite incredible if you think about it. And I think that's part of the problem with these uh, European political parties is that, as I sometimes say, they're half-baked because the parties have an incentive to protect someone like Orban because he delivers seats in the European Parliament. He delivers votes to them. But there's no disincentive because they suffer no brand damage from allying with someone like Orban because no one really even knows these parties exist. Voters don't think through the fact that Merkel's party supports Orban's party. And yes, the EPP has been a crucial defender of the Orban regime for years. And there is this talk about this suspension, but it's completely bogus. In fact, Uh, Bonds, Fidesz, members of the European Parliament, remain in the EPP group in the Parliament. They've been given uh, powerful positions on committees and they vote with the Parliament and they voted to support von der Leyen, the Merkel ally, as president.
1: Yeah, I mean, the hypocrisy of all of this is really quite astounding. And of course, I've talked before on this podcast about how absurd it is that in these uh, European Parliament elections this past year, which were stylized as these existential elections for Europe, which I think was always a little bit of an exaggeration, the biggest party in the European Parliament fielded a candidate who not only is widely considered to be, let's say, uh, intellectually unambitious and uncharismatic, but who had been the strongest ally to Viktor Orban within the EPP when he uh, led it for many years. You alluded to three factors, but what are the other two beyond the existence of these sort of strange political coalitions and alliances at the European level?
0: Okay, well, the second factor is essentially that the EU subsidizes these regimes because the EU, through its structural funds and the funds that, in particular, poorer member states get, Channels subsidies into these countries that the government can control. So essentially, Hungary, for instance, gets about 4% of GDP handed to it every year by the EU in subsidies. But then the Orban regime can use its control over the distribution of those funds to prop up its kind of clientelistic network. Everyone knows about the idea of the resource curse, the idea of how having oil wealth can help prop up an autocracy because it controls the oil revenues. Well, essentially, the oil well here is the EU funds, right? Mm. And Orban controls the. So there's an EU subsidy curse? Yeah, exactly. It's an EU subsidy curse. And you see that in the fact that so many people in Orban's own family and then in kind of close associates and cronies of the Fidesz party have grown rich on EU-funded construction projects and things like that. So that's factor number two. And then factor number three, interestingly, is emigration. Not immigration, but emigration, outmigration, And what happens there is essentially, again, there's a big literature that tells us that For autocrats, if people can leave, that can be a kind of pressure release. If people who are unhappy with the regime who might support the opposition can easily leave, well, that can help prop up the regime, right? Because it gets rid of sort of potential opposition supporters. And because of free movement in the EU, people who are dissatisfied with conditions, either for political reasons or simply economic reasons, they can move to other EU member states,
1: Mm. Yeah, and a lot of the youngest and most qualified, most ambitious people who might, you know, really bristle against the strictures of a regime if emigration was either impossible or difficult can simply go and make a good life of themselves in Berlin or Paris or London. And though they tend to be critical of a regime from a distance, that obviously has a lot less effect if they are outside of its borders.
0: Exactly. And it's, I gathered some data, for instance, that shows that in the period since 2010, when Orban came to power, the rate of increase of emigration from Hungary to other EU member states is twice as high as the increase in emigration from any other EU member state. So it's not saying the overall level is the highest, but it's been this rapid increase where exactly, as you said, a lot of young, educated people who have the demographic profile where they'd be less likely to support the Orban uh, government, they've just left choosing sort of exit over voice.
1: Well, that's depressing. Here's my challenge to sort of our conventional thinking on all of this. If the European Union, and I think the same may actually be true of NATO, were founded at this moment where we thought that the process of democratization and certainly the process of integration into a Western alliance that entails the maintenance of certain basic values is a one way street, where for various reasons, We just assume that once a country becomes reasonably democratic, it's always going to be reasonably democratic. So if the the nature of these institutions is premised on that idea, and if therefore we don't really have a way of dealing with countries that are going in the direction of autocracy, in fact, we may even be helping along the process of them becoming autocracies while being unable to throw them out. You know, doesn't that uh, challenge the legitimacy of these entities in a really fundamental way. I mean, as a German citizen or people who are French or Italian citizens, should they be willing to share their sovereignty with a quasi-dictator in Budapest, with an aspiring dictator in Warsaw? And if it is impossible to reform an entity like the European Union in a way that actually has kick-out criteria that actually takes seriously the fact that some of its members may start to betray its founding values, then perhaps that's an argument for refounding those entities, for actually starting from scratch in a way that takes those ideas seriously. And the same uh, might be true for an organization uh, like NATO, which obviously assumed that there would be some amount of real cohesion between all of its members at a strategic and military level. But in light of seeing recently Uh, Turkish troops essentially shooting at U.S. troops in the Kurdish areas of Syria, there's real questions about what sense NATO has if Turkey under Recep Erdogan and the United States simultaneously members of it. So is there a a fundamental way in which these institutions, which I value, have been built on assumptions that are no longer borne out by the world? Does that mean uh, that we should think in a somewhat more radical way about refounding them, then perhaps we tend to.
0: Well, Yasha, let me tackle the EU side of that first. Maybe we can come back to the NATO question, but I don't quite see it that way. Maybe it's because I'm not a radical, but I would say this. I don't think the problem is inherently with the institutional structures, let's say, of the EU or, or the setup. Rather, the problem is with the member governments and the political parties and political forces in the other member states. So you know, could the EU do more To defend the rule of law and democracy in Poland and Hungary, of course it could do more. It could do more without changing the treaties, right? There's a lot of talk, oh, it needs new tools. Yeah, the new tools might be helpful, but the problem isn't the tools or the structures. The problem is the political decisions of other leaders, right? So, again, going back to some of what we were discussing, if the mainstream center-right forces in the EU, such as the European People's Party with uh, constituent parties like the German Christian Democrats and others, if they had just taken a much stronger stand earlier on, or even if now, if they would take a much stronger stand and denounce what's happening in Hungary, kick out Orban from their party, things like that, if they would move and put pressure that the commission should suspend the funds that are subsidizing this regime— All those things could be done. But instead, what we see is, you know, that leaders that should know better are just compromising on their values for political expediency. So I think it's really a matter of standing up for principles and political action rather than a a matter of institutional reform.
1: Uh, Yeah, that's a good argument, I think. There's two levels here. I mean, one is that it does seem that we don't have the tools to deal with countries like Poland or Hungary if they become dictatorships for a long period of time. You know, in order to throw a country out of the European Union, you need unanimity. And so uh, as long as there are two countries, they can essentially protect each other. And I do see that as a very, very serious threat to the long-term legitimacy of a European Union. But on the other hand, of course, you can say, well, there are lots of tools that are less radical than that, that are, that are available, and they've never been taken. So why should we have a confidence? that if we refounded all of these institutions with much bigger sticks, these sticks would actually be used. And that seems like a plausible argument to me. I see what you're saying there. But isn't there still this basic problem of legitimacy? I mean, why should a French citizen agree to share some of their sovereignty with Victor Orbán? I see why they should share some of their sovereignty with German citizens, because there's all kinds of problems and challenges in 21st century politics that countries at the level of small or medium-sized nation states can't really solve. And so you have much more influence in the world, much better ability to confront those problems from ensuring that companies pay fair tax to tackling issues like climate change. If you band together your power and your influence in the world, that makes sense to me. But why as a citizen who has democratic rights, should I allow a de facto dictator to have some say over what rules bind me. How is that legitimate?
0: Look, I agree with you there in the sense that, and I've said many times, if you think about the series of crises that the EU has faced in recent years, things like Brexit, which we were talking about earlier, or the Eurozone crisis, or the Mediterranean migration crisis, as big a problems as all those were to me for the EU as an institution, the most serious crisis, the existential crisis, is this democracy uh, versus authoritarianism crisis that you're talking about, right? So it is a profound crisis because the whole raison d'etre of the EU is to be this union of democracies promoting rule of law, peace, etc. And so if you can have a durable authoritarian regime in the EU, it does raise all those profound questions that you just raised. Now, I guess my answer to the French citizen would be to say, you know why should you sh- share your sovereignty? I think you shouldn't find this acceptable and you should be demanding action from your leaders to restore democracy. I think part of the problem is precisely that the EU at its current stage of development is this kind of semi-politicized, I used the phrase before, sort of half-baked system where essentially a lot of the citizens don't care too much about what happens in other member states. They say that's their business. They're still a sovereign state. So they're sort of happy to turn a blind eye. And that means in turn that their politicians know that and sort of know we can tolerate this happening in Poland or Hungary because our voters don't really care. And so I think the answer is that if the EU is going to hold together, it'll have to go beyond this kind of half-baked state and develop to a position where really what happens in other member states matters to others politically.
1: One way of putting the current state of the European Union is that it's at an incoherent stage, that we either need to take a step back, a step forward, or to sort of rethink the dance. And your answer is take a big step back. So do you foresee the European Union developing into an even stronger political entity in the next 15 or 20 years? Or do you have little hope for that happening at this stage?
0: No, I think the general direction of travel is for the EU to continue developing as a political union. You know, we've seen that. It doesn't go smoothly and it doesn't go quickly, but that's the direction of travel of developments. And paradoxically, you know, where a lot of people thought that Brexit would be a huge setback for political integration of the EU, what we've seen actually is that because Brexit has been such a debacle, support for European integration in other member states has actually increased in the period since the referendum. And even the most sort of Euroskeptic movements in other member states, they've sort of changed their tune, where now they say, we don't want to leave the EU, we just want to stay in it and reform it, that sort of thing. So I think the the general direction will be for deeper integration, you know, slowly, and with a lot of missteps along the way.
1: And just one last prediction uh, at the end of a conversation to cycle back what's going to happen with brexit?
0: It's a great question, and I can't say anything with great certainty, but I would say I, I think the UK is going to leave. They're going to leave in a matter of a few months. and probably they will leave with some kind of uh, border in the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, so something close to Johnson's deal. But you know, along the way, we may have another general election or other steps before we get there. But I think they are going to leave. Brexit's going to happen.
1: And will Boris Johnson still be prime minister at that point?
0: Yeah, I think he will, simply because Corbyn is unelectable. I don't see really any way he can win a majority in parliament. And so long as Corbin is at the helm of the Labour Party, there won't be a united opposition. Lib Dems and others won't cooperate. And so the opposition will remain divided and that will hand things to Johnson.
1: Dan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com.